We're winding up the series we've been in for the last five weeks on the book of 1 Peter, and the overarching theme has been that of living hope. Now, I hope you realize we've not been able to plumb the depths of this book. There's so much more that we didn't get a chance to talk about, but hopefully it will cause you to do a little bit more digging. You'll study a little bit harder and deeper because of what we've been doing over these last five weeks. And so we've come to the end, and Peter's going to wrap up this theme of living hope with one more thought or facet about hope, and that's hope through humility. Dr. Walter H. Campbell wrote, he said, it is highly contagious. It banished gloom and discouragement. Everybody needs it. Wicked men try to kill it. Wise men never hoard it. It can't be bought, not at any price, and yet it is worth the whole world. The answer in a word is hope. Hope is a gift from God, a virtue for daily living, an anchor for the soul. Hope is the second pillar of the great Christian trilogy, faith, hope, and love. Hope gives you strength to keep moving toward the light when it seems like your whole world is crumbling into the darkness. Hope ensures, assures, and reassures our faith throughout an entire spiritual journey. Hope is not static, it's stirring. It is not lifeless, it's living. Living hope through a living Savior. Someone put it this way, hope is what makes the tea kettle whistle when it's up to its neck in hot water. And hope, of course, is what will make you slip your shoes back on when I say, in conclusion. (laughs) Peter's whole letter has been about instilling hope in the hearts of the persecuted first century church. And he comes to this final chapter, makes what seems to us as we're reading through it a rather abrupt change. He comes out of chapter 4 in this marvelous passage on suffering and how to survive suffering. And then he goes right into what appears to be something about church leadership. But it's not so much of a transition, really. It's not as abrupt as it appears to us today. After all, how is the persecuted, suffering church going to survive and get through the suffering and persecution unless the leadership of the body of Christ is strong, faithful, and able to lead through the tough moments? What was needed in the suffering, persecuted church were people who could stand up and say, we're going to get through this together. And realize this. Tough times are not all bad. They're hard to get through. They're difficult to deal with. But what happens in the tough times is not all bad. Martin Luther King Jr. wrote, he said, only in the darkness can we see the stars. And so sometimes it's only in the dark moments, the tough moments, the persecuted moments of life that we begin to see the light of the gospel in its purest form. The opening verses of this chapter are written specifically to and for the elders of the church. And you say, oh, I don't want to hear a sermon about the elderly. This is not about the elderly, all right? This is about elders as in church leaders. And leadership is critical in any area of life. For instance, nations rise and fall on leadership. The names Washington and Lincoln, even though preceding us by generations, are still names that you think of when you think of those who led this nation through crisis moments. There are many others that would make that list as well. But sometimes it's easier to think of leaders who failed than it is leaders who succeed. Nations also fall on leadership. 
And there are a lot of leaders that were destructive and despotic with their leadership and nations crumbled under their lousy leadership. When Moses found himself overwhelmed in the burden of leading this group of Israelites, these Hebrew people, through the wilderness after they escaped from Egypt, he is just burdened with the care of the people. And so God gives this first picture of teamwork in, in Numbers chapter 11, verse 16. It says, The Lord said to Moses, Bring me 70 of Israel's elders who are known to you as leaders and officials among the people. Have them come to the tent of meeting that they may stand there with you. I'll come down and speak with you there and I will take up the spirit that is on you and put the spirit on them. They will help you carry the burden of the people so that you will not have to carry it alone. I love that passage. Uh, theologian William Barclay says this is our first glimpse into God's plan for an eldership or leadership that would carry the kingdom not only then but throughout church history. What we have here is the fact that God, God has built his family in such a way that we don't have to carry our burdens alone. You want a touching picture of how powerful leadership can be? Go to Acts chapter 20 when Paul is saying goodbye for the very last time to the elders at Ephesus. They're on the riverbanks. Paul knows he will never see them again in this life. And they embrace and they weep together because so, so powerful was this leadership concept and team that it was the sustaining force during persecuted times. Now, we have great elders here. Uh, our elders, I believe, are absolutely the best. I trust them with my family's life and spiritual wisdom. I trust them with my life. I trust them with being accountable to them. I, I would not hesitate to go to any of them if I had an issue or concern or a problem in my own personal life. And while this passage highlights the role of elders in the church, I want us to hear this passage in light of leadership in general. Because every one of us in this room leads at some point, and every one of us in this room follows at some point, and every one of us serves in some point. And the qualities and characteristics that are here that Peter lays out are for all of us. I mean, if you want your leaders to be a certain way, you, you, we ought to be leaving, living lives this way as well. And so Peter takes this marvelous gem, this jewel of humility, and he begins to carve facets on it so that the more facets he puts on it, the brighter it shines when the light of Jesus Christ reflects from it. If you want to know how to survive through this living hope, it begins with a life of humility. And so here's the picture of humility. We sometimes say, you know, What's, what's humility really look like? Okay, Peter spells it out here. Here's a picture of humility. Begin in chapter 5, verse 1. To the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder, a witness of Christ's suffering, and one who will share in the glory to be revealed. Peter does not, Peter didn't say, hey, I'm writing to you this as an apostle. He said, no, I'm a fellow elder. You know, I'm one of you. There's a, there in itself is a picture of humility. Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, serving as overseers. Not because you must, but because you're willing, as God wants you to be. Not greedy for money, but eager to serve. Not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd, that's Jesus, appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. Young men, in the same way, be submissive to those who are older. 
Now, several years ago, Jim Collins wrote a book. It's not a Christian book. It's not a spiritual book. It's called Good to Great, and he explored what what kind of leaders and what kind of companies went from being good companies to great companies. And, and in a sense, it boiled down to one last quality that took great leader, good leaders into a spectrum of great leaders. And it was this quality of humility. Those who could put themselves in a servant kind of role, those who were humble with everybody else around, took companies and made them great companies. I remember when I read through the book the first time, I thought, man, this is biblical stuff. Of course it's biblical stuff. All truth is God's truth. The principles and the patterns that God gives us in his word work in every aspect of life. You, You want to lead a great company? Lead like God wants you to lead. Be humble. Now, when Peter was first chosen as an apostle, he was a rather brash young man. Uh, Peter always had something to say. Peter always had to be the first one to do it. And if Peter had written this letter at that day and time, why, it would have been an altogether different kind of letter. I mean, it would have had an altogether different kind of a feel. But Peter is now older and wiser, anticipating his own death and martyrdom, not far into the future. And he writes about the humble heart of the servant leader. Andrew Murray puts it this way. He said, the truth is this. Pride must die in you or nothing of heaven can live in you. And that's where Peter has come in his journey. So let's take a look at these different facets of this jewel of humility. Here's the first one. Be caring. Peter says, tend the flock. Exercise oversight. This picture is of being a shepherd, and it begins with a caring attitude. As a matter of fact, I think that is the most perfect description of what a shepherd, a genuine shepherd really is. A shepherd finds and provides food and water and shelter and protection and medicine and love for the sheep. A shepherd knows the name of his sheep. The sheep know the voice of the shepherd. Even Jesus said that a good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Oversight as is the word is used here, does not mean top of the heap, the big cheese, the big kahuna. That's not what he's talking about here. He's talking about the person who will exercise care and compassion and oversight. A student once asked anthropologist Margaret Mead what the earliest sign of civilization was in any culture. And the students were kind of expecting an answer, well, like a a clay pot or maybe a sharpened fish hook for providing for the group. Her answer surprised them. She said, the first sign of civilization in any culture is a healed femur bone. She went on to explain that there are no mended bones found among those cultures that live by the rule or the law of the jungle. A healed femur shows that someone cared, that someone had to help hunt or gather for the injured person while they were recuperating. It is the evidence of compassion that is the first sign of civilization. Is it then any wonder that the Bible describes Jesus as one who was moved with compassion when he did things for others? And is it any wonder that God wants the same from us? What are you doing? To help God's hurting people. Are you caring? Humility is seen in this facet of compassionate caring. Here's a second facet. Be willing. 
Leading and serving is a calling that demands a willingness to first follow. And if you're coerced into serving, it, 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 doesn't, it doesn't count. Coercion breeds resentment and resentment breeds contempt. Now, I'm going to say something that's really hard for me to say. So I want you to listen real carefully. If you cannot serve here willingly, do not serve until you can do it willingly. Now, I don't like to have to say that because we need all the willing servants that we can get. But, but I understand what, what, what the scriptures are teaching. I, you know, I don't want somebody to step up and say, I'll do it. I don't really want to do it, but I'll serve if you ask me to serve. I mean, you know, that, that doesn't get you anywhere. There, there, there must be a willing heart that says, I want to serve. I eagerly serve, not a coerced serve. I, I've always liked the story of the, the man in church when the offering was plate, plate was passed. He reached into his billfold, didn't look too carefully, pulled out a bill because he saw a five on it, dropped it in the plate. And as he dropped it in the plate and it started on, he noticed it was a $50 bill instead of the $5 bill he was going to put in. Turns to his wife and says, oh my goodness, I dropped a $50 bill in the offering. I didn't intend to drop a $50 bill in. I just wanted to put a five in. I didn't look close enough. It's gone. I can't get it out of the plate. She turned him in, pat him on the back. And she said, that's all right, sweetheart. God will only give you credit for the five. I think service is the same way. I'll serve God, but I don't really want to. Do you, do you think that, that, that God wants that sort of attitude out of us? The humble spirit is the spirit who is willing to serve and lead. Be authentic. Don't lead or serve for greedy profit, but out of eagerness, Peter writes. Authenticity is huge. I love the millennial generation because this is one of the hallmarks of their generation. They they crave authenticity and a genuine spirit. And I think absolutely shouldn't all of us in the body of Christ crave authenticity. You can work for an entire lifetime to build a reputation of authenticity. And it can be destroyed in a minute or two of phoniness or hypocrisy. A woman stopped by the grocery store on her way home after work. She wanted to get a chicken for supper. She went up to the meat counter, the, the glass case where it is cooled, was empty, and she asked the butcher behind the, the, the uh, counter there if he had any more chickens. And he said, yeah, there was a freezer box back behind the counter, and he reached in there. There was one chicken left. Threw it up on the scales, told her the weight, and she said, boy, she said, I, I was hoping for something just a little bit bigger. And he said, well, let me check. So he takes the only chicken, puts it back into the refrigerated box, gropes around like he's grabbing another one, picks out the same chicken, throws it back up on the scales, and he said, here's one that's a pound more. And she says, I don't know. I'll just take them both. <laughs> In one minute, your authenticity can be destroyed. Your reputation can be destroyed. In one minute. So be careful, be authentic. Christians need to remember how important honest authenticity is. Don't ever trade your authenticity for approval. Authenticity is indispensable. Human approval you can do without, but your authentic heart is approval before God. Brene Brown wrote, she said, authenticity is a collection of choices that we have to make every day. It is about the choice to show up and be real, the choice to be honest, the choice to let our true selves be seen. Of all the things about humility, authenticity is at its core. Here's the next thing. Be selfless. 
When we lead and serve, it is not about us. It is about those who we lead and serve. Peter says, don't lord it over. This is not about you. It is about serving and making a difference. Be selfless. If I mention to you the name Sir Isaac Newton, what's the first thing that comes to your mind? Sure, gravity. Uh, he was the one that outlined God's law of gravity, brought it into being. But what most of, by the way, he was a, a very passionate Christian, very strong Christian. He was knighted by Queen Anne, thus the title Sir Isaac Newton, became incredibly famous after the publication of his book where he outlines all these kinds of things, became a wealthy man. What we don't often realize is that Isaac Newton probably wouldn't be Isaac Newton today in our minds the way he is without the help of Edmund Halley or Haley, however you want to pronounce it. It was Halley who challenged Newton to think through his original notions. It was Halley who corrected Newton's mathematical errors and prepared geometric figures to support his discoveries. It was Halley that coaxed the hesitant Newton to write and then edited, financed, and supervised the publication of his great work, Mathematical Principles of Natural Philosophy. Historians call it one of the greatest, most selfless examples in the annals of science. Newton began immediately to reap the rewards of his fame and power. Nobody noticed Edmund Halley. Halley did take the principles of, of what Newton did, applied them to the orbit of a comet, got the comet named after him, Halley's Comet or Halley's Comet, but it only comes around once every 76 years, so we don't remember him very often. <laughs> it never bothered him. He didn't care who got the credit. He was just grateful that science was being advanced, and he continued humbly to serve while Sir Isaac Newton got all the credit. That's selflessness. Have you ever wondered, have you ever wondered how much could be accomplished in the kingdom of God if we didn't care who got the credit? Last facet, be exemplary. Be examples to the flock. Live a life that is worth imitating. You put all those qualities together. You carve up that gem of humility with those facets. And suddenly, we begin to understand what a humble life is all about. And you say, yeah, but how do I get there? <laughs> well, Peter doesn't leave us empty on that one either. He goes on to talk about the path to humility. Here's how you get to humility. Uh, in, in chapter 5 uh, and verse 5, this is what we read. All of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another because God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that ye may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him. Stand firm in the faith because you know that your brothers throughout the world are undergoing the same kind of sufferings. And the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ after you have suffered for a little while will himself restore you and make you strong firm and steadfast to him be power forever and ever amen peter goes through this whole letter to the persecuted church and ends with this triumphant promise and benediction and i love what he has to say here because he said, you want to be humble you want to live a humble you want to humble yourself before god here's how you get there i've given you a picture of what it's like now here's how you get there he talks about first of all clothing ourselves with humility. This has to be a choice. You've got to want to get there. You've got to want to practice humility. So I'm going to ask you, how, how well dressed are you for the occasion? 
Senate chaplain Peter Marshall years ago shared this prayer for humility. He said, Lord, when we are wrong, make us willing to change. When we are right, make us easy to live with. God wants easy to live with people who are humble in their hearts. When you're characterized by a humble spirit, it makes it easy for someone to see Jesus in you. When pride dominates, Jesus disappears from view. So here are the two, two steps to the path. Step number one, empty yourself. He says, cast all your cares. Empty the cares, anxieties, worries out of you. Place them on Jesus. These are tough times. Anxious times for our country. Uh, you pick up today's paper. Turn on the news a little bit later on when you get home. Get on the internet. Read the news. Wherever you find your news, it won't take long until you're, you can just start, to start feeling the anxieties begin to rise. This going on in this city, that going on in that city, things going on around the world and how it impacts our country. And you begin to feel the tension, the stress, the anxiety building in you. I, my goodness, what's going to happen? How are we going to deal with this? this our country is in worse shape than it's ever been. Uh, yesterday, Dr. John Fooder was here. He did a workshop. He's preaching on the west side today from Moody Bible Institute in Chicago. And he told us yesterday, he said, every 16 minutes, there is a shooting in Chicago. Just Chicago. Every 16 minutes. That's scary stuff. Do you realize that worry invites the future to ruin the present? Do you realize that anxiety is looking down the road and saying, I can't handle this? Do you realize that worry and anxiety stands in contrast to, to humility? When I'm worried, when I'm stressed, when I'm feeling anxious, it's all about me and how I feel and what can I do and how can I solve these problems. That's not what God has asked us to be. God has asked us to trust him, to get our focus off of me and what's going on around my circle and lay my burdens, my anxieties, my worries on him and say, I can't handle this, Lord, but you can. I don't know how to fix the future, but you do. Because God can only work through the life that has emptied himself or herself of the worries and the stresses and the anxieties of this world. Do not invite tomorrow to ruin today because of your worry. Focus on the power of God, the needs of others, and you'll be on your way to a humble life. Here's the second step, and that is control yourself. Don't get lulled into spiritual stupor. Stay alert. Be watchful. Don't let down your guard. About the time you think you've got a temptation handled, Satan unleashes the second wave, and that's where most of us lose the battle. How do we exercise self-control? He says, resist the devil. Because your enemy, like a roaring lion, seeks whom he may devour. Now, first of all, you've got you to recognize who your enemy is. Your enemy is not the person down the pew from you. It's not the political party across the aisle from you. It's not the neighbor across the fence from you. It's not your spouse that sits on the other side of the table from you. Our enemy is God's enemy, and he is out to destroy you and everything that is important to you. The imagery is powerful. Peter says he's like a roaring lion. A lion doesn't roar until he already has his prey. He says, and he's seeking whom... He can devour. That's not nibble. That's not snack. That's utter destruction. Devour. Here's where humility comes in. People who think too highly of themselves say, I can handle this. I can do this. I got it. I was taught to pull myself up by my own bootstraps. I can handle 
what the enemy throws at me. No, you can't. No, you can't. You see, when you focus on your own authority, your own abilities, your own power, your own talents, you're going to fail. I've seen it happen in my life. It'll happen in your life. You cannot depend upon yourself when you're facing down the enemy. By the way, it is the person who is the loner that Satan gets that much quicker. When, when, a, when a lion is attacking a herd, it's the straggler, it's the loner just outside the herd that becomes the first object of prey. That's why God gave us the church. That's, that's why we believe that life groups are so vitally important is because when you're in the body of Christ, when you're in a life group, it's so much easier to have that support around you when you're facing the enemy and you're dealing with temptations, you're dealing with stress, you're dealing with suffering, you're dealing with all of these things. So I'm telling you, stay close to the church, to the body. Stay in the herd because that's when it'll be harder for the enemy to get to you. And if he can't destroy you, he will do everything in his power to convince you that this faith journey with Jesus Christ is a waste of your time. If he can't destroy you, he'll just make you apathetic. But I'm here to remind you that Satan is wrong. There is nothing, absolutely nothing, that equals what God can do through a humble Christian. This journey that you are on, this journey that I'm on, is the greatest journey in the world. Russ Flowers used to preach at the East 91st Street Christian Church in Indianapolis. Russ has since gone home to be with the Lord. But he was a part of a rotary club in Indianapolis, and they would every week have somebody in their club stand up and describe what they do for a living. And when it, when it was Russ's day, he stood up, but he didn't say, I'm a minister, and I serve at East 91st Street Christian Church. This is what he said. Hi, I'm Russ Flowers. I'm with a global enterprise. We have branches in every country of the world. We have our representatives in nearly every parliament and boardroom on earth. We're into motivation and behavior alteration. We run hospitals, feeding stations, crisis pregnancy centers, universities, publishing houses, and nursing homes. We care for our clients from birth to death. We're into life insurance and fire insurance. We perform spiritual heart transplants. Our original organizer owns all the real estate on this earth, plus an assortment of galaxies and constellations. He knows everything and lives everywhere. Our product is free for the asking. There's not enough money to buy it. Our CEO was born in a hick town, worked as a carpenter, didn't own a home, was misunderstood by his family, hated by his enemies, walked on water, was condemned to death without a trial, and arose from the dead. And I talked to him every day day. Isn't that terrific? It's so easy to get discouraged at times when you think of, man, I'm all alone in this battle and the enemy is overwhelming me and I can't handle it. Well, you don't have to handle it alone. We are on the greatest enterprise in the world. And when you and I humbly step up to say, Lord, use me, I am willing, it makes all the difference. Nothing that the world can offer or nothing that the devil offers can compare to what God has offered us for a lifetime of humility.